Hey, it's great to be um, here with you. Uh, you know, <clears throat> over the last year, Pastor Chuck and I have developed a great friendship. And, you know, uh, the, the, the dirty little secret is that sometimes pastors can actually be territorial and um, afraid of one another and feeling like you're in competition. It's been the exact opposite in my relationship with Chuck, and he has been so open-handed and generous, as well as Brooks and this church, to allow our fledgling church to um, use this facility on Sunday nights as we were doing our preview worship, and now we're on uh, Sunday morning. So it's just been a great friendship and partnership and uh, encouragement. So I'm, uh, I'm grateful for your, your shepherd and, and the friendship that God has given us. So it's good to be here and be, be among you. Um, I want to just start by telling a little story of when I, last fall, I was, I was going to actually a church planting conference in Dallas, Texas, and I f- we flew into Love Field, and then uh, I took a, a, an Uber out, and as we were driving out, I saw it, it said Herb Kelleher Way, and kind of the light bulb went on. I was, oh yeah, Herb Kelleher, he's the founder of Southwest Airlines. So Southwest Airlines, I've always been fascinated with that airline, especially in the early days, because they're sort of renowned for their corporate culture. They kind of have built an organization that sort of sees itself as a family as much as a business and a a, a sense where they're all on the same team. So sometimes when they're running late and they have to turn the plane around real quickly, you'd you'd see pilots, you know, working alongside stewards and stewardesses to, you know, get all the trash and and turn it around, something you probably never see in other airlines. Or you'd see, you know, flight attendants telling, telling jokes about, you know, the oxygen mask coming down, that kind of thing. So they just created a corporate culture that was, um, uh, that really defined the company and actually led it to amazing success where they went several decades um, of continuous profitability, even through some of the downturns. One of the stories they have is that uh, in, in their corporate headquarters, all down the whole hallway is a series of pictures of their employees with their pets. I just thought, how cool that a company would do stuff like that. And uh, believe it or not, the vision statement of Southwest Airlines is this. It's to become the world's most loved, most flown, and most profitable airline. I was sort of struck by the fact that a company would strive to be the most loved airline. Now, maybe that's not hard to be the most loved airline. It's like being the tallest dwarf. You know, it's like, you know, people tend to have a lot of love for airlines. But nonetheless, to actually have love be in their vision statement. And so I I was struck and wondered, you know, what is the corporate culture, if I can use that term, of the Christian church? What are Christians known for? When people think about Christians in churches, what do they think of? Do they think of love? Is that what comes to mind? What is the corporate culture of prism? What is it that you want it to be, that you hope it to be, that people in Pasadena would think of when they think of prism? You know, I hate to admit it, but, but a few months ago in the life of our new church plant, there was a conflict between a couple leaders where there was some offense taken, and it messed up to the fact that we hadn't been attentive to the reality of how we're going to deal with conflict and how we're going to deal with offense. And it was kind of, a, a, again, a cautionary tale, a reminder that we needed to kind of go deeper with Christ and with one another to think about what is the kind of the culture and the relational atmosphere that we want to have to what do we want to protect and what do we want to foster. And so it sort of started us on a, on a, um, a journey, again, of looking at what it means to be God's people. What does it mean to... Uh, um, have a functional and, 
and healthy leadership team. We're studying Patrick Lencioni's The Five Dysfunctions of a Team as a Leadership. We're trying to get healthy again in certain ways. But more importantly, it sort of made us think, what is, what is a Jesus culture, so to speak? What does it mean to be God's people and relate to one another without offense, without, uh, and I'm, I'm not going to say without conflict, because I think that's impossible. Um, we see so many evidences of New Testament uh, of conflict in the New Testament that we wouldn't actually ever get away from that. But how do we become a people of mutual discipleship, of mutual encouragement, um, of being quick to apologize, of working through our conflicts? In other words, what would it look like for God's people, for God's church to be known as the most loving, the most forgiving, the most unoffendable people in the world? What would that look like and feel like to us? So I want to sort of try to unpack that with us today. Um, and as a starting point, I want to I sort of note how today we live kind of in a culture of offense, right? We sort of um, see people offending and being offended all the time on Facebook, in the newspapers, in the political realm, in road rage, you name it. There's all context. So I want to encourage you even now to think about what's a context in which I felt offended recently, or maybe you offended someone else. And how am I defining offense? I want to just use this simple definition. It's, it's someone, uh, an offense is, is being resentful of a perceived insult, right? Okay, so resentful is something you kind of like hacks you and you kind of stew on it. You're thinking about that resentment. And it's because someone has wounded your pride through an insult or bruised your ego. Um, and that word perceived, it's like, it's how you see that. You know, it may or may not be the reality, but it's how you experience and, and perceive that. So again, there's all kinds of ways that we, we're offending one another in today's, today's culture. In fact, Christianity Today said, we live in, era, in an era of constant moral indignation. We're just outraged all the time, right? And again, the political climate is fostering that kind of atmosphere right now. And so um, when a person says, I'm offended right now. It's kind of like today's unforgivable sin. It's like you've done the ultimate wrong thing and you are a bad person as a result of that. It's like the worst moral offense. And so when we say, I'm offended, we now have the power to shut the other person down, to shut the conversation down, and maybe even to shut that relationship down. It's very powerful today, this culture of offense. So again, what would it be like for us to experience empowerment from God, to never choose to take offense, to be unoffendable. What might that be like? And what would it be like if in our friendships and our marriages and our family relationships and our workplaces to never take offense? Where would that power come from? Well, the scripture reading this morning is from the book of Colossians. And it talks of the supremacy of Christ, the sufficiency of Christ, and where that, this power to be in relationship and not be offended comes from. In the beginning of this uh, passage in Colossians, it talks about, um, it says, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, right? Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth, right? It's sort of, where's your head right now? What is influencing the way that you're thinking and receiving how other people are, what, you know, what they're saying to you or about you? And um, this reality of setting our minds on Christ and the things of him 
ultimately it needs to show up in our relationships, right? That's actually how it manifests itself in the way that we're connecting to one another. And the, uh, the, the, this whole passage is, is pointing us to the fact that when we relate to each other, we don't relate, um, Bonhoeffer says, we never relate directly to another person. If you're a believer, Jesus Christ always stands between you and that other person so that everything hopefully, that you say and that you receive is being mediated through and in him. It's like now we use Google Translate all the time, right? If we meet someone in foreign language, like there's always sort of this tool that's translating. It's like Jesus Christ is meant to be that intermediary between us and all of our relationships. So we, we don't have direct relationship. We have a mediated one that's through him. So what does that look like and what might that mean? Well, <clears throat> I think what God wants it to look like is what Jesus prayed in John chapter 17. And so John 17, uh, Jesus prays this. He says, I pray, Lord, that they, may be, they all may be one. He's speaking of all believers. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. So again, that's kind of the vision. It's like when people think of this community of faith right here, I think, man, they love each other in such a remarkable countercultural way that there must be a God. There must be a, a father-son relationship like Jesus had with the Father. So again, what does that begin to look like? Well, Paul's, um, Paul's prescription is simple, but it's not easy. He says this in, in, in verse 5. He says, put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you. So part of the, the recipe here is just dying to our offenses, right? Is saying, okay, <clears throat> whatever is in me that's not from you, God, I'm not just going to like work on a moral self-improvement program. It's actually going to get crucified. I'm going to turn it over to death. So Paul uses this strongest uh, language here. He says, put it to death. Um, put them all away. Do not lie. So Paul says, uh, when we see offense in us, in ourselves, we're to invoke the death penalty here. Say, Lord, again, it's not, it's not just willpower, but saying, Lord, I, let help die. Help, help me to get put to death whatever is there that's not from you. Let me cut off its oxygen supply. And again, <clears throat> and if you think about someone who maybe has offended you recently, instead what happens is that when, when our pride is wounded, and when our ego is offended, the more, the more natural response is to get angry, to, um, to attack back, to um, want to <clears throat> defend ourselves, right? And instead, uh, Paul says this. He says, um, but now you must put all these things away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth, Right? That's probably when the cursing comes out, right? When people offend us. It says all that stuff, we have to die to that. Put, put, it, put it away. One commentator says, Christian renewal isn't a cosmetic overhaul. We don't simply add on a veneer of Christian values. Paul doesn't tell us to put on new clothes over the old. The old must be stripped off and thrown away. And again, uh, um, part of part of the challenge is for us to love the things that are, that are from God so much that the other stuff doesn't bother us. Look, here's a, uh, 
An example we saw in the news recently is that our nation's vice president was recently critiqued for protecting his marriage in a way that he wouldn't spend time alone with other women. And he was critiqued on that for, for various reasons. And I thought it was just interesting, too, that the value of actually protecting your marriage was sort of, in a way, put down um, in, that, in that particular context. But again, all, uh, for us, a Christ follower, we have the freedom to, um, to say, you know what, I actually don't want to put myself in a situation where I'm going to do something that's not going to be God-honoring. So I'm going to, I'm going to put to death the opportunities even to go there. But <clears throat> the great thing about being a biblical Christian is that you can actually acknowledge the fact that you have weaknesses. You can acknowledge the fact that you may be tempted towards something that God doesn't want you to do. It's not pretend about that, but to actually be truthful about it. And that's actually freeing. A colleague of mine, I work part-time at Fuller Seminary, and a colleague of mine told this um, story about himself. He was at Fuller, and <clears throat> another colleague who was a, actually a faculty member um, and was sort of well-trained in intercultural communication mistook him and my, my friend, I'll call him James. James is Asian-American. And this other faculty member who was white sort of um, mistook James, even though they knew each other fairly well, for another Asian-American. And James was, like, offended and even indignant, like, I can't believe I'm getting the all-Asians look-alike kind of thing. So that weekend, James goes on a bike ride, um, and a friend of his, who's also Asian-American, was going to be in the, in the bike race as well. And he didn't see him at the starting line, so he pedaled on, and several miles into the race, he sees a guy bending over his bike, like, fixing a flat tire, and he's like, oh, there's my friend. And he called out to him several times, and the guy wasn't, he wasn't responding. His friend wasn't responding, so he rides on by, and um, a few days later, he sees him, and he says, hey, I didn't see you. You know, I, I waved to you at the race, and you didn't say anything. He was like, I actually had a pastoral emergency, and I, didn't even, I wasn't even in the race. <laughs> so James, who was so offended and indignant that he had mistook, so, you know, been mistaken, himself had mistaken another Asian-American for his friend. And I love the fact that he told this story on himself. Because it means that we actually have the freedom to know that we can be uh, just as wrong um, as we're sometimes getting upset about others. It gives us a fundamental humility. And Paul talks about that in this, in this passage. He says, um, this is actually the kind of character that you're, you can have through Christ all the time. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. He kind of begins by saying, this is who you are, right? You're chosen by God, you're holy because of Christ, and you're beloved by the Father. That's the foundation, right? Like all these perceived offenses, like it's not really the main thing. You're chosen, you're holy, you're beloved. And in light of that, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. He's saying you can have that posture all the time and not get your hackles up because of this foundation that's given us through Jesus Christ. And so, <clears throat> um, again, how do we become a people that, that don't take offense? Well, what, and what would it look like to, um, as I want to put it, to become an unoffendable church, right? An unoffendable church. People may try to offend us. They may say things. They may do things on the road. But Paul says our lives are hidden with Christ, that we have this covering. And... <clears throat> When we know that, then what other people think doesn't matter as much. 
when the most important, and when we, when we know how the most important person in our life feels about us, then the other stuff doesn't matter. Now, I, I want to say as a caveat, it doesn't mean that issues of justice don't matter. It's not that when someone says something offensive, that there is never a call for us to speak back to that and to speak into that and to call people out. That's actually, I think, actually a, a crucial part of what it means to be God's people. But the difference is that when we call people out, we're not doing so out of our personal sense of being wounded. It's actually on behalf of others, maybe who are not able to speak for themselves. That's the difference, right? It's not like our own, we're trying to get back at someone, but we are, we're standing on behalf of the, the vulnerable. I think that's where biblical justice comes in. So again, a little bit of caveat. That's, um, that's not what I'm saying, like just Christians should be doormats and people can say anything, we just you know, capitulate. Okay? I think being unoffendable is different than that. So <clears throat> uh, uh, as I mentioned, um, Paul's, Paul's uh, prescription, his recipe for us is to put on, he uses kind of the image, right, of clothery, clothing, like what to put off and what to put on, right? So he's got these character qualities he's asking us to put on. And part of it means, you know, if you're bringing a genuine humility and a patience with others, again, it's a recognition, like my friend James was saying, that you, can, you know where you yourself have gone wrong and you can actually own that part of it. And I was, um, my wife was reading um, a book uh, recently on sort of uh, called like overcoming like day, everyday conflicts, something like that. And the author, um, Ken Sandy, he had a, had a quote that really kind of struck me between the eyes. He said this, he says, if I'm only 2% responsible for a conflict, I'm 100% responsible for that 2%. Okay? Because when an offense happens, we think, well, I'm, I have the moral high ground because what they did was more wrong. Right? Even if I did something to maybe trigger that, they're the wrong, they're the bad person. Right? And most of us kind of operate in that way. We kind of think, well, if my spouse said this hurt, more hurtful thing, then my, my retaliation wasn't that bad because of what they did. And I don't think that's how God sees, God sees it, or, or, or we ought to. Instead, we can fully own the part that we have to play. Many years ago, in another state, when I was pastoring, there was a staff person that um, I had recommended and helped bring on to staff at, at that church. And this person, um, very tragically and unfortunately, ended up being involved in an extramarital affair. And that was, uh, to put it, put it mildly, was really devastating for the life of that church. And <clears throat> I shared something in a leadership meeting that someone had told me kind of about this person. And when, when this person heard that I had shared something, you know, kind of hurtful about him in this meeting, he was outraged at me. And so we kind of had this, like, shouting match one time. And I remember thinking, wait a second, you caused all this problem in our church and you're mad at me for saying this one thing in this context? And it took actually quite a long time, many months. Um, actually, I had moved on from that church and was reading a, a book by Rick Warren and all of a sudden, just kind of conviction from God came saying, you need to apologize for your contribution in this even though I still, you know, I was still thinking, oh, this guy made the, was the bigger thing. So I called him up, and I said, I just want to say I'm sorry for sharing that in the leadership meeting. It was out of turn. And he instantly burst into tears and was so amazingly grateful 
for the sort of the first step, and our, our relationship was healed that day. It doesn't take away what had happened, but it, it sort of, it, it had transformed the nature of our relationship because I could own the part that God was convicting me about. And I just think, what would it look like if, again, believers, if we could be known for actually uh, having a kind of patience and humility with one another and with the world so that these, this kind of thing would be normative, right? I mean, I'd like to say I do that all the time with my wife and my kids, but I'm still a work in progress, as we all are, right? But I think God's word gives us a vision for what this might be like. Because again, the Bible is honest. It says this, verse 13. This is what you have to do, bearing with one another. If one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must give. And later it talks about teaching and admonishing one another. The great thing, again, I mean, look at the book of Corinthians. There was all these things that went wrong in the New Testament church. They were far from perfect. And the Bible captures that reality, right? It's not, it's not naive about human nature. It's saying, you know, bear with one. And there's people need bearing with. Some people are just difficult, right? They can be annoying. Bear with them. When you have a complaint against one another, what you're going to do, right? Fill up, the complaint box can fill up easily. Forgive one another, right? Forgiving presumes that we're going to sin against one another, right? God's not surprised and shocked when we sin against each other. It's not like, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. It's the exact reason that he sent Christ. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our tendencies. And he's, this is his solution. So, <clears throat> again, what kind of community would we be if this was the norm? To, um, to bear with one another. And then um, Paul kind of concludes by saying, above all these things, put on love, right? Love is, covers a multitude of sins for us to be a known as a community of love. And again, loving doesn't mean only being nice. This, Paul says we want to teach one another, hey, let's, let's help you become more loving. Let's admonish one another. Even when someone's like, little, like going a little straight, hey, brother, hey, sister, uh, we, let's grow in this together. We, we can do better. So again, as you're thinking about, maybe there's a conflict you're in right now. Maybe there's a relationship that's broken right now. What might God's next step for you to be? You know, be not being a doormat, not being, uh, not trying to return offense for offense, but actually bringing the power of Christ into that relationship, or even into the public square in the way what we say to, again, that stray but slightly insulting Facebook post all these opportunities for us to actually live into this reality. And so the next time you're offended, maybe your response is going to be to ask a question and to understand more about where that person is coming from and why they shared what it is. Maybe it's going to be to follow the book of James advice, be, be uh, quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Wouldn't it be great for us to be known for that aspect? I want to close by kind of mentioning a few declarations or prayers by a guy named John Bevere who kind of writes about the seriousness of offenses in the body of Christ. I want to encourage us to sort of use these as um, uh, statements and declarations and prayers uh, for ourselves and for others, okay? He says this, I refuse to be trapped when the enemy's bait of offense tries to ensnare me in its grip by filling my heart with bitterness jealousy, or envy. Okay, next one. Holy Spirit, 
destroy every shred of pride in my life. And do not allow it to keep me from being healed, set free, and filled with your power. Last one. Father, I want to continue to always grow into a more intimate relationship with you. Expose the areas of my life that hinder me from being Christ-like and cause my life to reflect the character of my precious Savior and Lord. And so again, I think this is important for, for the body of Christ because when we're in that mode of taking offense, we, we're rendered impotent. We're sort of benched. We're on the sidelines of relationships and of influencing our unbelieving friends and our unbelieving culture. And conversely, I think when we can, as we can become in the power of the Holy Spirit, an unoffendable people, an unoffendable church, that gives us the power to step into conversations where no one's willing to go right now in our, in our day and age. Conversations about race and culture that are just huge time bombs. Wouldn't it be amazing if God's people could lead the way in conversations about intercultural and cross-cultural communication and relationships of, the, of the, um, just the, the racial unrest that's tearing our country apart? Wouldn't it be amazing if we knew how to reach out to our Muslim neighbors and to bring the gospel in a way that was demonstrably different? Our culture is so needing this reality of being unoffendable. And by the grace of God, couldn't we be a part of his solution for our broken world? Let's pray. Father, we pray that um, as, a, as sort of... Uh, difficult and maybe even unrealistic as these words seem. They seem so counter to how our own hearts operate and the tendencies of our will. Lord, all we can do is just say, Lord, change me, renew me, remake me. And Lord, for the the offenses that, that came to mind even today, Lord, we just set them before you. We put them on the altar. And Lord, later as we take communion, we trust and believe that the love of Christ demonstrated in the cross has put to death that those things in our lives, that they've died with you and have been raised with you. So Lord, help us to set our minds on the things above. In Jesus' name.